Loon Shots by Safi Bakal. How to nurture the crazy ideas that win wars, cure diseases, and transform industries. This is the book we read in the past week. We read the first half of it. And we're going to start off by kind of summarizing the important concepts to give you guys some context um, on, on kind of the ideas that we're talking about. So Loon Shots, which is the name of the book, um, he, he describes it as a neglected project, widely dismissed, its champion written off as unhinged. And so there's kind of two types of loon shots that he talks about. There's a P loon shot and the S loon shot. And so P loon shot, P standing for product. So let's say you are in the PC space, making your RAM faster, increasing your hard drive space. Those are all product loon shots. But an S loon shot is a strategy loon shot. So let's say you're Google, right? And, and improving your search optimization in your search engine would be a product type loon shot. Uh, but adding ads, to the side of the screen or adding ads to the bottom, something that's not really thought of but but is uh, immediately beneficial, that's a strategy loon shot. So no actual improvement in the tech, but just in the way maybe it's presented or or in some business decision. Well, I'd like to add, why is it called loon shots? What does loon shots mean? And he makes a point. Everyone knows what a moon shot is. It's this really big idea. It takes off and everyone, it's so successful. But it's called loon shots. If you look up the definition of loon, it's a silly or foolish person because he makes a really clear point in the beginning of the book. That is how people with these great ideas that turn out to be so successful, there's no red carpet that's put out when they present their ideas. They're challenging current ideas and they're seen as silly or foolish as in loon, which is why the book is called Loon Shots. Yeah, and that silly idea becomes ultimately very successful. Uh, and then there's two more concepts that he talks about that I want to touch on briefly. The first of this is phase separation. So in order to kind of create loon shots and, and let these, um, you know, these innovative ideas thrive in an industry, let's say a company, for example, because I think that's the easiest example, you kind of need to somehow, phase separation basically refers to the idea of separating the innovators and uh, the others. So you can split them to the artists and the soldiers. The soldiers um, continue to push out maybe the tech or the product and artists innovate on that. And so there's this idea of phase separation. And, and he doesn't say phase separation to all the way is good or all the, all, you know, not at all is good. I mean, there's some happy medium. And the second idea is dynamic equilibrium, which is the exchange of ideas between these separated uh, phases, or the, you know, these separated the artists and the soldiers and the ch continuous change of ideas. That's called dynamic equilibrium, which may be a misnomer. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. It's separation, but cooperation. So this idea originated with um, Vanover Bush during World War II to kind of separate the soldiers and the people who are creating these new technologies because the soldiers may have not wanted to use these new technologies. But what you do is you keep these aspects separate, group separate, but that doesn't mean that they're not working together. They're exchanging their ideas and they're cooperating. So the first idea I wanted to touch on um, and kind of something, an, in, an insight is this idea of market inefficiencies, uh, kind of creating loon shots. So loon shot is basically an innovative idea, right? And these innovative idea ideas come from markets, or we can think of uh, essentially places where um, it, things aren't efficient, right? And so we can call them market inefficiencies. And so when these markets are inefficient, there's an opportunity. And ultimately, that opportunity leads to a loon shot. And the, and to, and, and the primary reason that these loon shots don't immediately succeed or aren't immediately obvious is because of implicit biases. And what that means is people obviously, uh, in a new idea, they will, some people will immediately dismiss it. And so because of that, you know, they're dismissive of these ideas. Maybe it's this fundamental biasy 
uh, that is biased that's kind of swaying them to lean away from the idea, right? Think of some radical revolution, um, you know, cars or, or touchscreen phones. People thought they didn't want that, but ultimately when it was given to the customer, they enjoyed that. And, and so the implicit bias there was, I don't want a touchscreen for whatever reason. It's not efficient. It's, it's, there's no tactile feeling. I thought this point was uh, really interesting because, you know, oftentimes you think, especially in the world of entrepreneurship, which is something that uh, I think I'm passionate about and I know a lot of other young people are passionate about, uh, usually uh, our idea of what a great idea is, you know, when it comes to a company or it comes to a product is something that everyone off the bat um, sort of accepts as this great idea. And it's very clear how it's going to become this game changing product. Um, but I would say that the author, Safi Bakal, um, argues that, no, the best ideas actually are the ones that, um, like Rory said, challenge the um, implicit biases. Um, and if you, th if you think about it, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, the reason that the innovations, that there is still room for innovation is because um, of what people commonly accept to be the standard. Um, and when those standards are challenged, that's where improvements are going to be made. I'd like to point out that it's interesting and it's really easy to say, being readers of the book, saying, oh, that's pretty interesting that the greatest ideas are not the ones that are being praised. But if you're thinking about it from someone who's actually creating something, it can be kind of discouraging getting your ideas. You have these new ideas. You think it's going to work. You believe in yourself, obviously. But, and he, the author's confirming it, that it's okay. But isn't it pretty discouraging as someone who's creating a product or a new idea? Yeah, I think uh, the ability to say no um, or to, to, to get no said to your idea um, and be able to you know, keep move on and um, s still have belief in your idea is something that's um, really, really hard. Uh, to me, there's always been this fine line between uh, being stubborn and being persistent when it comes to getting a no. Um, and it's oftentimes very blurry and uh, I I'm often confused with when, when am I being stubborn and when am I being persistent? Uh, the author, Safi Bakal, uh, makes this argument that you're being persistent when you're continually asking why and getting to deeper levels of why, um, and you're being stubborn when you're not asking why anymore. Uh, and I, think, I thought that was a really good definition uh, because asking why allows you to advance and improve off your idea and sort of being stubborn is just sort of banging your head against the wall. And to kind of explain that in an example, right, let's say the idea of ride sharing services like Uber that you would get in a car with a completely random driver that you don't know, right? So let's say someone has this idea and it's a loon shot because ultimately we know it becomes successful. But if someone says, hey, look, that's not successful. This is the reason. The person that is stubborn will say, no, you are wrong. The person that's persistent and that's, you know, good quality uh, will say, why am I right? And let's think about your, you know, train of thought and maybe how you were wrong. And, and I think this connects back to another idea, which is the idea of um, outcome versus system. I don't know, Rowan, if you want to touch on that really quickly. Yeah, I, I thought uh, I thought another great point um, when it comes to uh, when it comes to decision making was uh, sort of judging decisions off of um, the system that you use to come to those decisions rather than judging those uh, decisions off the outcomes. I think it's really easy for people to fall into the trap of uh, basing the quality or judging the quality of a decision um, on its outcome, whether it led to a positive outcome or a negative outcome. But really, um, I think the author steals this idea from uh, Gary Kasparov, um, but he's, he argues that really, you know, if there's a broken machine that leads to this um, uh, to this negative outcome, 
That's the machine should be changed, not necessarily um, the outcome itself. I think one thing that this, you know, I think the obvious implication of this idea of, uh, you know, questioning the system versus questioning the outcome is, let's say you have a good system, but a bad outcome. Um, it's easy to say, okay, well, maybe this was just, you know, luck or some other factor, or let's think about the system. The hard thing to do is to do the opposite. Let's say your outcome is very good. It's very difficult to question the uh, the system or the input, right? And so if you think about it, let's say you're investing in crypto um, and in cryptocurrencies and people, and you make an insane trade on Bitcoin, for example, and you make, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, and, and you think you're some kind of champion and some kind of king when really it may have just been luck. And so it's really important, even when you make those successes and have those successes and, and, and have those victories to look back at the system and say, was this the result of a good system or, or, or was a result of luck uh, despite a bad system? I think there's a lot of connections also with the first book we read for the podcast principles, focusing on systems. And also when you have a bit of an idea, like Ray Dalio, we learned he had these ideas about the stock market and he was so con he made a really good prediction. And then the next time he made a prediction, he was so confident in himself. It ended up turning out really badly. And that caused him to learn not, I know I'm right, but how do I know I'm right? So it relates to loon shots when you have an idea and you think it's really good. And maybe in 40 years, it will be recognized as really good. But right now, people are saying that idea is crazy. It's good to have the mindset from principles and from this book encouraging you to look at how do I know I'm right or why do they think I'm wrong? Yeah, and I think um, principles, again, Ray Dalio being the author, he talks about systemized decision making. And, and I kind of want to talk about system uh, or system, yeah, systemized uh, entrepreneurship, right? And so formulaic entrepreneurship, I know taking entrepreneurship classes, whether it's online or in school, we learn about this, you know, maybe it's a three-step or eight-step stage entrepreneurship, a five-step path to success. Uh, and, and applying it to like a problem, for example, let's say a problem is that people can't, uh, people don't have good carpool options, right? Maybe that's a problem that you're trying to solve. Um, does this formulaic way of entrepreneurship allow itself to mingle with loon shots, right? How open is formulaic entrepreneurship and, and how we know it uh, to opening up the implicit biases that people have that prevent any innovation? I think it's a tough question to answer, but I'd love to hear like your first thoughts on whether formulaic entrepreneurship um, allows for these new innovations or whether it's more of gradual change. I would say that the author of this book and myself would agree that the structure formulaic entrepreneurship is a good way to nurture loon shots because the author makes a clear point that these loon shots, it's about structure and not culture. And we're having the structure, there's a lot of structure with the formulaic entrepreneurship, identifying a problem. But maybe it's a problem that doesn't even exist. Maybe it's something that you're thinking outside of what exists now, that type of loon shot, you could be limiting yourself by trying to find problems in the world, rather than trying to find things that have never even been thought of before that are totally revolutionary right and if you're solving a problem i think you limit yourself a little bit my first fear here is that when someone uh you know the champion of the loon shot someone who is written off uh, as uh, is dismissed as crazy but tends to you know know, uh, ends up being right they are in during the time of developing this idea and being dismissed they are seen as irrational and in formula like entrepreneurship our entire goal is the opposite, to be rational. And so even though ultimately we can see this irrational a loon shot as being rational, I know I'm using that word a bunch here. My point is that formulaic entrepreneurship, 
I fear, and this is my opinion, is that it doesn't allow itself for um, ideas that are are Im- that are immediately irrational to thrive, because um, you know there's no like there's it's kind of like this day one hypothesis. There's no long term um, contextualization of the idea. It's more just like oh that idea immediately. Let's judge it through these five steps. Oh, it's bad instead of a more thorough process. I don't know if I'm I'm really articulating what I'm saying correctly. I totally agree with that. Um, I I would say that this formulaic approach to entrepreneurship oftentimes plays into the um, the establishment and the certain standards that have already been set um, in the you know in the entrepreneurial world. Um, and innovators are going to challenge those standards. So it's sort of um, it's it's sort of counterintuitive to uh, be basing your ideation off of these you know, these establishment principles when you're trying to change things and make things new. Uh, back to the original question, though, um, which is that can you sort of like write off formulaic entrepreneurship on the whole? I think it's really hard to, de- uh, to determine that because I think, you know, formulaic entrepreneurship, there are a lot of ways to execute um, something like that. Uh, and I think it largely depends on um, the weight you place and the value uh, you place in the feedback of so-called experts or um, people who are already in the field. Oftentimes, you know, when you're getting feedback on ideas um, for whatever it may be, projects, um, companies, products, uh, you want you want to you want to go to the experts and the people who are already established in the field, and that's great for some things. Um, but when it comes to predicting the future um, and understanding uh, what's going to be viable in the future, going to the people who are going to become obsolete in the future or who are really uh, you know who, who are present now but maybe won't innovate to the next level um, doesn't really seem to make sense. Yeah, I think it's kind of like the the it's like a life cycle, right? Almost like a wa- like some kind of wave theory where you have these, you know, these really successful um, people who are deep in their implicit biases, um, and they're overcome by this new wave uh, of innovators. I do want to make sure that we aren't confusing um, formulaic entrepreneurship with formulaic innovation because I think they're separate, right? Entrepreneurship, let's say, is uh, building an e-commerce website on Shopify and getting it to succeed. I think there's somewhat of a formula to that, and so I think it's it, it would be foolish to say there is no formulaic entrepreneurship. Formulaic innovation and radical innovation, on the other hand, now I think that's a lot more debatable. So I think that's kind of what we were referring to when we talked about it earlier. I heard ours mention uh, sort of wave theory and uh, sort of the ups and downs. And uh, one, of, one, of the, um, one of the ideas that stood out to me um, was this idea of the David and Goliath, right? And I think we see this a lot of times um, in different places um, in, in our world. But uh, oftentimes when it comes to specifically tech companies, um, but there'll be a tech giant that um, does not evolve and doesn't change and doesn't think like a startup anymore. Um, and they'll be, you know, uh, out of the market um, and uh, sort of their place in the market will be taken by a younger, um, younger company that thinks, thinks different um, and that challenges the standards. Uh, and I would say that Safi Bacall argues that this, this is inevitable. Or, or, or he definitely presents that argument um, that uh, that to some level it, it's inevitable that um, that that certain established companies will um, phase out of the market. I'd be curious to see if you guys think that this is something that's inevitable, or um, if there's a potential for companies to really be in it for the long term um, and not be. Uh, I think we're seeing companies like Apple and Google try to do this, but is this a viable strategy? I think the entire book of Loon Shots and Safi Bacall, what he talks about is that there is a way to do it, right? There is a way to avoid death. 
and that is by using these two ideas um, so far that we've seen, which is phase separation and, and uh, this equilibrium. And so the principle that he lays out here is ultimately the way to deny it. And I think you can, I think it would be foolish not to accept that companies have mortality and that they, they are bound to die. And so in that case, it is inevitable that, uh, you know, the David Goliath situation would happen. But, but I ultimately think that what he has presented is a way to avoid that. Um, and so we've kind of seen the fall of these huge companies that he, that he mentions, uh, you know, Pan Am Airlines, Polaroid, uh, Apple 1.0, right, before uh, Steve Jobs created Next. And so he really uses the examples to paint a picture of the David Goliath and, and maybe how it could have been prevented. Yeah, I agree. I think innovating has been such an important topic, but I think now more than ever, companies are focusing on how they can it's so much important to continue to innovate and to not be stagnant because they can see, like Ari said, with Pan Am and Nokia and other companies, how they were so successful in IBM, like more dominant than ever in the industry. So now companies are really focusing on hiring um, and nurturing environments for innovation so they can and stay important. I, what I also want to bring up, uh, sorry for getting off, I, I want to talk about this idea of uh, like this obsession that people often have with with um, innovation, and he makes a really good example. I'm forgetting the exact name. Um, I think it was IBM, but basically they had uh, sent off a separate research unit uh, on the west coast of the U.S. and and their main you could call them soldiers are on the east coast, and they allow these you know these artists um, isolated to come up with super innovative ideas, right? And and these large visions for the world, but there is no exchange with the soldiers, and so nothing ends up happening. And so it's really important once you have that innovation um, to connect that back and to not let it just wander. Uh, and I think this comes back to the idea of, of that he talks about, which is champions versus innovators. Or sorry, champions versus inventors. And so, um, you know, inventors are somebody who maybe creates a new idea, develops that new idea, some new technology. But champions, they are the bilingual specialists fluent in both artists speak and soldiers speak. So what that means is they can facilitate the conversation between the soldiers and the artists to bring some new idea to fruition, ideally at scale. Yeah, he says having the idea is only taking the that actually occurring your idea into the real world. It's only if you're imagining a football field, it's about the five yard line. And the actual, you have to work with the soldiers and you have to have those people who are able to create those connections to work together to get the other 95 yards for it to actually be successful so your company can stay relevant and create impact. I think, yeah, um, I, I'm totally with you there. Uh, I, to me, this, uh, this, this, this sort of is all evidence of a point that um, I've sort of uh, come to learn of, of the last, over the last few years um, in, sort of, uh, in sort of my exploration of entrepreneurship. But, um, and, and that really is just, execution um, is, uh, I would say, more important than, than your idea. Um, and obviously, you know, your, an idea is important. Um, but really what, what we discover here is, you know, uh, the P-type loon shot is, um, is really important, right? And create, creating a good product is important. But what really makes a company sustainable and viable in the future um, are all the S-type loon shots um, and the continued innovation um, that, they, that they bring. Um, so t to me, this is, this is really evidence of uh, the, 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 the importance of the execution um, is, uh, really, is really trumps the importance 
of the uh, the idea because in terms of in the long run, um, when it comes to other competitors, um, you know, achieving the same abilities um, in a P-type loon shot, really the differentiating factor um, is going to be the, uh, the the S-type loon shots and the execution um, of the overall uh, product or company or whatever it may be. And so P-type loon shots, which I want to reiterate, means product, right? The improvement on the on the tech or, or some, um, yeah, I guess like technological ad- advancement of the product. These P-type loon shots are often, uh, you know, they're motivated by becoming bi- uh, bigger and stronger and faster, but with no real desire. And so, you know, Polaroid, a big um, photography company, um, I think like a, a couple decades back, they have a bunch of these P-type loon shots, and they're able to progress their cameras at you know, an unprecedented rate. The problem, however, and, and Apple sees this as well with, uh, you know, or sorry, Next sees this as well, you know, Steve Jobs, um, with their innovations in the tech not being at all feasible and not having real any, not having any market. Right, and so in the case of Polaroid, they had developed this camera, and it was super useful, but it was so expensive that the average consumer couldn't buy it. They went to the alternatives, and ultimately Polaroid failed. Same with Next, right, by by Steve Jobs. He created this, uh, you know, super elegant design, and it was, it was a, they called they called it a twelve thousand dollar something blue uh, black box, and it was cool, and it was made for uh, universities, but ultimately, the market that they designed it for could not use it. Because it was not, it, they basically created towards a consumer, but it was so expensive that they'd give it to university. What I'm trying to say is that uh, it's very important to be cautious about the practicality of ideas and there actually being a market that you want to optimize for. And, and so that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. So I think we've talked about a lot of the major ideas in the book. Um, I, one thing I, I saw that was pretty interesting is that humans really are wrong about the future uh, a ton. And, and, you know, he picks a bunch of examples, but... It's really important, and this goes back to radical open-mindedness with Ray Dalio, but it's really important to understand that we are often wrong and to really um, understand that irrational things that uh, occur to us, uh, th- things that occur to us that are irrational may have um, some rationality. And, and I guess like he talks about Bacon and the scientific revolution in Europe, kind of like questioning old ideas. So, so what do you guys think about this Um how important is it to be skeptical versus kind of a pusher or soldiers, if you want to call it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important. It's not bad to be rational. And I think, I don't think we're saying that at all, but I think you have to be careful because you want to be rational. But if you really think you're onto something and it, other people think it's irrational, and that's when you div- dive deeper, you look for the why, you go deeper. But I think rationality is very important in decision-making, and in your ideas. But if you really think you're onto something, like I said, it's important to understand by reading these books that people are not good at predicting the future. Your idea may have a lot of merit to it and don't discount it because great ideas have been loon shots. One of the principles uh, that I, I, or the sayings that I've really liked is um, to have strong convictions loosely held. Um, so whether that is whether that comes to uh, opinions or whether it comes to facts, what you perceive to be true, um, really believe in believe, believe in what you believe to be true. Um, you know, argue it a ton, um, and you know, be be really strong and bold. But at the end of the day, realize the fact that you know the, the amount of knowledge we have is so insignificant relative to what we don't know. 
Um, so being able to really admit that you're wrong um, and move forward is where the innovation is going to happen. Perfectly said, Rod. I think that's a that's a great kind of phrase um, to abide by. I, I think that when people hear radical open-mindedness, they immediately mistake it for not having opinions. And that's not what it means at all. It means to have opinions, right? Being radically open means having opinions, but knowing that those 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 uh, beliefs may be wrong. And so I've ca- I've caught this in a couple people, you know, a couple times where they they're like, I don't want to make this assumption. Make the assumption, right? It, it's important to articulate it, but then understand that it may be wrong. Um, and so so I think that's very important. Really well said. And then we're gonna close off there. Uh, we have part two. Uh, which is, you know, the next 150 pages of this book coming soon. And we'll kind of wrap up our ideas there. Uh, Yeah, thanks for listening.